Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this lecture I'd like to talk about knowing God. I've been talking about the experience of God or the knowledge of God in terms of a sublime experience or in terms of an apologetic. And I think that we can actually compare and contrast ways of knowing. That is, that I think there is a distinctive element in knowing God in the New Testament and knowing here in the full-bodied sense of it, not simply cognition, but cognition combined with experience. And so, you know, is it in our thoughts? And clearly this is where early Anselm is going to take us, is that the deployment of thinking in a particular fashion. And what I think uh, we'll find in what I'm going to describe as a Christian encounter or a Christian experience or knowing, that it actually can be distinctively separated out from what we might typically take as the deployment of reason or the experience that we might have in reason. And that is that obviously an inherent antagonism, I think, between these two modes of knowing God. And I think that this is part of what is addressed in the cross of Christ. You know, this is Paul's point in Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians 1, 22, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. That is, they're all in pursuit of a particular knowing, a particular understanding, maybe even a particular experiential reality. And then Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block partly because of the nature of the experience. That is, it's an alternative. It's a departure from one way of knowing. And under the Greeks, foolishness. That is, that it wouldn't even enter into the realm of Greek rationality. It doesn't even qualify as reason. But under them which are called Jews and Greeks, this is more or less everybody in Paul's world, there is an experiential reality in which you encounter God. That is Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. I think that what Paul is saying is that there's a first order of experience that you're not going to confirm this experience by anything other than the experience itself. And of course, by experience, we don't want to leave out reason because this experience is going to have its own form of reason. The idea is it's a self-confirming confrontation. And so we often assume that, that human wisdom and Christianity are on a parallel course, but what Paul is describing here, that in fact they're in conflict, and he's covering, at least at this point, you know, every form of human wisdom, the Jewish and the Greek understanding. And what these understandings actually do, rather than being a parallel to God's wisdom or a parallel to a Christian understanding, they actually set up an obstacle to knowing God rightly, or maybe we don't even need to qualify it, to knowing. In other words, there there is a calling to falsification in this knowing. It's a kind of experience of a what is an unreality. This is why the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. It stands over and against their own starting point, their own way of knowing, whether that is in the signification, the sign system, you know, this is the idea, because they're seeking a sign. Well, the sign that is given them in the cross is precisely not the sign that they're seeking. I think that we can build on this conclusion. It is in the cross, then, a direct confrontation with an exposure of the nature of the interference that is occurring within these systems of, of knowing. This is actually where Anselm begins. He says the, the fool in Psalms 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then the psalmist goes on to describe the iniquity and the unrighteousness that flow out of this starting point. And what Anselm does, you can start with the premise of the fool and to show that the fool contradicts himself in acknowledging God 
in the process of denying him. And what Anselm is describing here is a particular understanding of recognizing in the sign of God himself. In other words, his whole system is built upon, especially in the ontological argument in which he's making this case. The ontological argument is all counter to the fool, in which he's saying that the name God contains all that one really needs, that is, that something in which nothing greater can be thought. That is, the very possibility of God is already implicit and necessary, even for one who denies his existence, because to really think the thought of God, you've thought the, a particular kind of thought. To get at this, I've done this elsewhere, but you almost need to begin with Anselm's cosmological argument. And I think his cosmological argument is, is demonstrative of his ontological argument. But of course, what I'm saying about all of these, both of his arguments, is they are prototypes or, or archetypes of the kind of understanding of, that you get in a, any kind of self-grounding system, any kind of foundationalism that it is always, in Derrida's language, it's always identity through difference. And so Anselm's argument begins with the comparison of differences. You know, he begins, I think, with a horse that may be called good, uh, strong, swift, and you can then come to the strongest, swiftest, you know, greatest horse that can be thought. So what he's doing, he's using contrasting pairs, the idea of, think of the knowledge of good and evil, that you know what the good is over and against the evil, the evil over and against the good. And of course, the inherent problem in this kind of understanding, you need both the good and the evil to have either one if you're going to understand what they are in terms of a contrast. And so if you understand what the good is through a necessarily existing evil, the evil is going to be part of the good, part of the understanding of the good, and the same t notion of the evil. And so obviously the, the system that Anselm is using, there's an inherent flaw in the system. And in a way, he's going to recognize this when he comes to the greatest and supreme existent among all existence you know, he's going to say that God is not an existent at all. That is, if you left him as one existent among other things, then you're just saying God is in the same order of existence, and this would defeat his program. He can't say that God isn't an existent, exactly, because then he's used a system that would defeat his own program of comparing existence. And so what he needs to do, and this is, you know, the way that he's going to close the ontological gap. And what I'm saying here is that the, not just in following Anselm's reason, I think there is a particular experience to be had that is, uh, strangely enough, this particular form of rationalism is going to give rise to a particular mystical experience. He's going to call this an experience of God. But I think what he's actually describing, in fact, is over and against what Paul is describing as an authentic experience of God. It's what we're going to narrow it down to in Anselm's description, is the thought is going to empty out the world. That is, you have to pass beyond the world and the differences that you find in the world. And then the thought succeeds in even narrowing down or emptying out thought itself. Something than which nothing greater can be thought is itself turning into this sentence. It's reflecting this sentence. I think this gets at the difference between the two experiences. That in the experience of God in Christ, that it's not that the world's excluded or that we count ourselves transcendent to the world or we pass beyond the world, that in him all things hold together. That is, that the world is included in this experience, that there is a sense in which the experience is itself encompassing all of reality. And I think that this gets at, not just in this argument or not just this experience, I think that this is the way of dividing out these two realms of experience, that what's going to happen in 
the Greek and the Jewish form of experience, I think, is characteristic of human experience. It's characteristic of that thing that's happening in Romans 7, in that there is a kind of pitting against the body, or there is a kind of tendency toward the disincarnate, a passage beyond the body, or over and against the body, or over and against physical reality, or created reality. The picture here that Anselm is actually tracing out for us, I think is typical that he's crossing an ontological divide between God and the world, but the place that he imagines that he can cross that, and this is true, and I think this is there in the description of Hegel and Schelling and their description of the you know, the motion in God, that it's not any actual existing reality that is taken hold of. The way that Anselm does this, he says that only God exists in reality. He's going to count out all other existing things. He says the spirit exists in its own wonderfully unique and uniquely wonderful way. Indeed, it would seem to follow from that, the foregoing that the spirit is for some reason the only thing that exists. Other things seem not to exist. In comparison, in fact, do not exist. Now, he can't stay there, but I think he does stay there in his experience. That is, that he's describing experience, an encounter, literally, that he'll call an encounter with what he identifies himself as darkness. And so he's going to reduce the world to the category of nothing, of darkness. But this nothing, you know, it's necessary to do this. It's almost necessary to mark the foundation of this nothing in his argument and to pass beyond it. In other words, it is a movement in his thought, but it's also a movement in which the mind, you know, in a, if we think in a mystical terms, is emptied. And the reason it's emptied is in Anselm's thought, it's emptied through a rational procedure. Maybe this is the sense in which it is different than an Eastern. That is, he's literally going through, he's using reason against itself pitting the mind against the you know, thought, the thought that he's the name for God that this thought entails, is actually an empty name. It doesn't refer to anything. It can't refer to anything, this greatest thought that can be thought. And that's the very nature of the name, and that's the very nature of the experience. So he's posited an unthinkable divide which separates us from God. And to cross this divide means that he will turn from thought to experience. And that's the key here. That is, the thought gives rise to the experience. He's going to pass from reason to this, you know, kind of ecstatic experience. The thing that he's uh, attempting to do, he's trying to bridge a gap on his side of this ontological divide that once you think this greatest thought that can be thought, he imagines that he's passed beyond what it is to normally be human. That is, to think the name of God, you've actually thought yourself into the deity himself. It is the thing that Derrida recognizes in uh, Identity Through Difference, that it's going to reduce to sameness, that you take these opposed pairs, you make an absolute difference, but the absolute difference arrives then at an incomparable difference, the comparison that is operating in the understanding ends in a kind of incomparable difference so that the thought to achieve an absolute has to be over and against itself. So the argument depends on judgments of, of differentiation among existing things, but the ultimate judgment entailed in an ultimate act of the will is that judgment which reaches the point of absolute difference, which is contradictory. It's a denial of difference. Things that are completely incomparable can't be said to be different because you can't compare them. But the way that Anselm puts this, he says, where other things do not exist and God alone exists, the idea is that we've passed from comparison to an incomparable difference. And there is this difference so great that differentiation or difference and all of its rational categories are undone. And so the spirit 
which exists is so wonderfully singular and so singularly wonderful is comparable to nothing. I mean, that's the what he's saying. And all else that exists is the marker of this. So he's describing a form of thought. He's describing reason, rationalism, and he's describing an experience, not an experience of the world per se, but an experience of getting beyond the world. That is characteristic, first of all, of the forms of thought that are going to, you know, the human forms of thought are fit, that are failed, that they readily give themselves over to nothingness and death. And I think that the cross is going to, you know, the, first of all, Anselm in Curtis Homo, he's going to use the cross and he's going to talk about it, the cross, but it's going to be fit to the purposes that he has in mind here in this understanding, that he's going to subordinate the work of the cross to the particular form of human wisdom that he puts on display in the ontological and cosmological argument. We could dismiss all this, except that this is going to infect Christianity, at least in the Western Church. He's saying the will able to carry out the envision ontological reversal, the incapacity of the will that's there in sin, would normally make one not be able to follow his argument. But he's saying that now that the will has been empowered, or the gap has been closed, he's thinking of this gap as a literal gap that in the argument itself of crossing the ontological divide, he's saying now we literally can cross the divide. We can leap the gap through the cross and we can thank God in this formula. Uh, of course, the, the name that he has for God is not Christ. The name that he has for God is something in which nothing greater can be thought. So the work of the cross accomplishes a substantiation of the form of wisdom that he's setting forth. Again, this could all be dismissed as foolishness, but remember this is the, the form of atonement theory that has been adopted in the West. And I think the impetus behind this is there in Anselm's argument, that Anselm's purpose is not merely to establish the existence of God, but it's to in fact establish on the basis of his argument the power of his own thought, the power of his own reason, this form of argumentation to attain God. He says it's not on the basis of faith, but it's through reason, and he imagines that this reason is irresistible. It's a necessary argument. And so his goal is to get a firmer vision of, on God, and he imagines that he's done this in this argument, so that the, the argument comes with what he's going to equate with the beatific vision. I, I have no, no problem in talking about a beatific vision, but I think there can be confusion as, as to when we have God in sight, and that's my point here, that we need to differentiate these experiences. That one is an experience that is turned inward, emptied of thought, emptied of the world, and that's taken, that nothingness is taken as an experience of God. I think it's actually an experience of death. I think this is, a, you know, in this sense, Anselm is the perfect example of the Freudian death drive, the, the drive in some way to get beyond life to an absolute reality that is taken to be death. And, of course, death here is presumed to be the absolute. That's the, precisely the thing that is undone in the death of Christ. And so this is my critique that we've turned from knowing God on the basis of what he has made known in Christ to what we can know on the basis of something else. In doing this, we get rid of what one form of knowing. I, I suppose there's nothing wrong with this until the role of reason displaces the role of faith. That's, the, you know, that's really what Karl Barth is recognizing, I think, in the various approaches to God that he's going to equate with Analogientes, that the analogy of being might be deployed then, in fact, as an Antichrist, as a form of the Antichrist. Whether Bart got it right historically, I think that this is a demonstration. Well, yeah, this is precisely over and against the knowledge, the understanding, and the experience that is there in faith, so that reason... And this particular form of reason, the self-grounding reason, 
literally displaces the role of faith. Of course, faith, we can talk about, it does have its own reason, but this isn't it. This isn't the form of faith's reason. The point of the incarnation, the point of the empty tomb, the risen Lord, I believe is to erase this reifying lie inherent to, certainly it's there in modern rationalism, but I just presume that modern rationalism or modernity is a manifestation of a universal experience that always responds to alienation and death that Christ is going to describe, that the very form of that is a mode of saving the self, that he who would save his life will lose it. I guess that's just what we're always doing, and we can do that in any number of ways. And so the cosmological argument as presented by Anselm, uh, and that's all I mean by this, I'm not, not wiping out all cosmological arguments, Oh, I guess I am wiping out the ontological argument. There, there is an obscuring of God in the very approach to God. And so Christian believers presume to encounter God in his essence in Christ. And this presumption tells us what sort of world we live in. It tells us the, the nature of this meaning. This meaning is not some sort of neutral meaning that we can arrive at by some other means. That is, the, the universe emptied of the specific person of Christ, the Logos, does not give us Christ by human reason. Creation, language, the world, they are indeed perfectly suited to revealing God. But what stands in the way of this re revelation is the insistence on a sufficient knowledge apart from the act of God in Christ. That is, that the form of the Greeks' wisdom, the form of the Jews seeking a sign, is always going to obscure what God has done in Christ. And the history of Western thought is it became centered on this form of reason. Martin Jay calls it the, the mind's eye. It's there in Plato. It's actually captured, you can see it, that part of this experiential reality that's there in Anselm, that what he is describing is really based on a kind of visual metaphor. Think of the pursuit of emptiness or death, or the pursuit is really set upon an unchanging static forms, on that which is historical, the attempt to attain an understanding that escapes time, that is, he's not an interested in engaging narrative or story. He's trying to escape change. He's really trying to escape embodiment. And these are all linked, I think, to privileging the visual over the auditory. You know, the visual is apart from the auditory. The visual taken as an end in itself is purely static. That is, language is going to be used as a kind of picture. This was, you know, early Wittgenstein. That's, that, that is, that part of this is not just a failure to understand the nature of language, but it's going to be a failure to understand that, that there are two different experiential realities that are opened up to this. You know, as the great Nazi philosopher Martin Heidegger will put it, for strictly it is language that speaks, Man first speaks when and only when he responds to language by listening to its appeal. And what Heidegger is going to depict, and Heidegger's a neat bookend to this, because I think we can think of Anselm as the first rational mystic. Maybe Martin Heidegger is the last rational mystic. He was certainly following Anselm. As both saw language, as something like the call of divine voice, but not don't think here of the word of God. They just mean language as an entity unto itself. Anselm bequeaths to the Western world a theological, philosophical system intent on establishing its own foundations by assuming, I think this is Richard Rorty, the sense of the world as a limited whole. He's literally going to depict that we can in some way enter into that place beyond the word in this experience. And so he seeks final solutions within himself. He depends upon a kind of natural interiority. 
and he sees his own meditative theology as the functional equivalent of revelation. That is, he sees his own voice. Quite literally, he's going to compare the word of man to the word of God. Aren't they on the same parallel course, he'll ask. And so he'll equate the divine word with the human word, and he'll equate the attainment of self-presence with the presence of God. And that's what he's really seeking. He's saying that if I can do in myself, rightly remember who I am, through the word that I have, that is my own word, my own voice, the place of my own language, then I'm doing what God does in the Trinity that he rightly remembers through his word. And so he's seeking a visible sign, quite literally. In the words, I God, I've seen you, I've sought, you know, this is what he's been seeking. And this is what Jesus warned against, the Jews seeking a sign. And so the absolute which Anselm achieves is to be had only in its negative form. He does not see through the darkness to the light. He says, my understanding is not able to attain that light. It shines too much, and my understanding does not grasp it. Now, again, you, you know, we, we might think, well, this is a good conclusion because he's acknowledging the transcendence of God, but actually what he's doing is acknowledging the transcendent import of his argument and of his experience. He's taking the argument as of having delivered God to him, but all that it's delivered is darkness and absence, but yet he's equating that with an absolute experience. So uh, I think literally he's confusing one absolute experience, a kind of negative absolute, with the positive absolute that is to be had in Christ. You know, in a way, he's using the Augustinian method here of examining the mind or soul in order to discover the likeness of the divine mind. I think there's a lot to be said for the Augustinian analogy of the Trinity and the Trinitate. But I think that Anselm, in taking this and applying it to the individual, is literally picturing this capacity to be godlike in an inherent human capacity. We might call this the innate immortality of the soul. I think that's assumed in Anselm. The result that he arrives at, he thinks, is literally irresistible. He says, I give thanks, good Lord, I give thanks to you. Since what I believed before through your free gift, I now so understand through your illumination. That is, he's claiming this argument is itself on the order of revelation. That if I did not want to believe that you existed, I should nevertheless be unable not to understand it. That is, once I've seen this argument, the results of this argument, I can't unsee it. We might say there's something commendable in what he's depicting, but the danger, I'm afraid, is that he's depicting this irresistibility or this necessity of his argument as itself the equivalent of the experience of Christ. There is indeed the sense, I think, that in a kind of apocalyptic epistemology, that faith does contain its own reason. But what Anselm is doing, I think, is in fact over and against faith. He almost says as much. And as a result, the argument becomes a kind of empty argument. Throughout this, Anselm assumes that He's praying, and many people make a lot of his praying. But remember that he's also picturing this praying. This is no longer the monologion, but he's actually seeing this as a dialogue, that is, that it's not a monologue, in which the answering voice of reason, the answering voice of the rational proofs, he takes that as the answering voice of God. God is just one ontological step removed but he's seen by the rational soul in and through a rational revelation. Like Plato, the human immortality of the soul is proven in its rationality, in its capacity for rational vision. And so reason, reason, judgment, and salvation, they're all one thing in Anselm. He says, so then the rational mind may be the only created thing that is able to rise to the task of investigating the supreme nature, but it itself is thereby that through which it may come closest to finding something out about it. That is, how do we come to God? 
uh, how do we have an experience of God? Through the rational mind, through our capacity for thought. Christ plays a role in this, only that he's removed the gap and the weakness of our will. That there's the closure of this gap is the, the capacity for this argument. And so the obvious inference is that the efficacy, this is Anselm, the efficacy of the mind's ascent to the knowledge of the Supreme Being is in direct proportion to the enthusiasm of its intent to learn about itself. That is, the, the deeper you go into your own self-understanding, you know, what he imagines is the self, this understanding of the interiority of language and the, the sense of the will. In other words, you're going to have to buy his anthropology because it's in and through his anthropology that he imagines that there is the revelation of who God is. He concludes this, insofar as it forgets to look to itself, you can't stop looking at yourself. You can't stop in self-reflection. You have to continually be turning inward. It falls from its reflection on the supreme nature. That is, to think of the self is the same thing as to think of God. You know, he's really thinking of a Greek picture of God here as kind of the unmoved mover. What does God think about? Well, God does what he's recommending, that you close the doorway to anything outside of yourself. Go into your room, he says. Close the door of your mind. Close the door of your room. Because that's the way God is, isn't it? He's isolated. And so as we become isolated in the same rational, self-reflective mode as God is, then we become God-like. We take, up on, take on ourselves the image of God. And so his program of imagining being, big B being as the basis of being, or of getting at the word, you know, big W word, through the human word, it requires absolute difference so as to transcend the temporal and the created. Remember, these things are not a sign that points us to something. But he empties creation of even, I think, its capacity for that signification. He empties it of true being. Instead of having Christ as, you know, in a kind of a Vitruvian man, a picture of Christ at the center of the universe, or Christ, in, as in Colossians, he holds all things together, that we encounter who Christ is then in and through creation. Anselm's not thinking that way, but he puts absolute being in a kind of unattainable category. And so ordinary existence and human relationships, those are a mundane and distracting order. And what's key is self-relation, which is equated with relation to God. And this then will eliminate ordinary words. You know, he, he talks about ordinary language, and he's searching out the breath. And, of course, the implication here is the spirit behind language, which arises. You know, what gives rise to the word? Well, it's this breath. It's this spirit. And the breath or word is at once without content. He does a thing here. Is Christ a singular word or a multiplicity of words? And so you're going to pass from any kind of ordinary thought to thinking a singular thought, to no thought at all. It's a kind of negative absolute. Ultimately, all of these comparisons, as in Hegel and in Heidegger, it is a comparison between nothingness and something. And nothing becomes a necessary part of his equation. You can't get rid of the nothing. In fact, the whole world is the marker of this nothing. Another way to say this, and the way Hegel and others have put it, is that on the basis of death, that is, death is the representative of this nothing. We know what life is. We only know life through death. But the thing is that death becomes the controlling factor in our understanding of life in the same way that evil can control our notion of the good. And so nothing can control or take on, becomes a controlling factor in anything that's positive. And so absence becomes the controlling factor in presence, you know, as you can think it on through. I think this is precisely what Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has emptied out. The empty tomb has emptied out the category of death as the controlling factor in our lives. Now, Anselm is going to say precisely the opposite that for him the concept of nothingness or emptiness, as with Hegel, I think it's a necessary part of the experiential reality he's describing. 
Now, there is the concept, and I, that, that's the danger, I think, that we imagine that creation ex nihilo is an experiential reality, creation from nothing. Well, actually, the danger is that we would reify that. You know, this is Paul's declaration about the idol. The idol is nothing. But it's a nothing that has been reified. It's to take the concept of death, which is the biblical depiction of being brought to nothing, and to imagine that it is an absolute. And so the tomb of Christ, this is actually the way Paul is going to talk in Galatians. He's saying that circumcision or uncircumcision, the law-keeping or standing outside the law, he says these are not anything. These do not have being. Only Christ has being. And I think that's the point of the the work of Christ, is to show where true being lies. And so nothing is connected to evil, then, in a twofold sense, that when the idol is nothing, nothingness is reified. Now, Paul in Corinthians, he, he does warn immediately after that that this particular brand of nothingness is demonic. He says, you know, don't think because the idol is nothing that it is not something that has captured human imagination. The reification of nothing or making nothing an absolute something that is characteristic of idolatry is not halted, Paul is warning, in being exposed as nothing as it's the characteristic form of sin and evil. That is, it's that in which nothing comes alive. And that is sin by definition. It's not enough. You know, I think Heidegger and Hegel and here in Anselm, they're recognizing this animated nothingness. Nothing and darkness are made a positive experience in Anselm's cosmological and ontological arguments. He says, God, I've seen you, and yet I've only seen nothing and darkness. So this is not just any old mysticism and rationalism. It is the characteristic form of thought that's taken up by Descartes, it's taken up by modernity, in which nothingness and emptiness have come to play a key role. You know, this is what I really think, uh, and, and need illustration of this, is the discovery of zero that is behind the virtual reality of computer software. Maybe it illustrates the necessity of nothing behind the virtual. People can play this game, and you can be caught up in this game. It can constitute itself a world. I think it is the modern world. But we can see the the virtual reality, literally what we recognize as virtual, becoming ultimate reality. But I think that illustrates what always happens in sin, that the virtual, the empty categories are assigned a fullness in which playing this game, you imagine this is the only game in town. You don't recognize the virtual. It's not equated with sin and evil. It becomes the foundational reason, and this is inherently nihilistic. That is nothing made something that has come, I think, even to dominate in theology, clearly in an Anselmian theology in which the cross and the work of Christ are made to support a form of wisdom that is ultimately empty and that the New Testament is set against attacking. Unfortunately, inasmuch as we're caught up in an Anselmian Calvinistic form of atonement theory, what we're doing is making all of the work of Christ serve the devil. It's all serving this nothingness. The biblical depiction is precisely that of sin and evil revolving around nothing, death, absence, made something. It obscures, this is what Paul is saying, that that these forms of wisdom are over and against the cross. You either understand the cross or the cross is a stumbling block or it's foolishness. And so the devilish or the demonic in Scripture from Genesis 3, it's not portrayed so much as a positive ontological force but as a corrupting, subpersonal entity, which would alienate and empty out the presence of God. The serpent appears, you know, in Genesis 3, from among the creatures, out of creation. It appears and disappears. Maybe we could say the perspective sold by the serpent is the imminent frame. 
thinking of Charles Taylor here, you know, his depiction of the, the modern period or even the rise of the secular, that it's all within this imminent frame. Well, that's just always the idea that of a, of a closed universe in which what is ontologically ultimately grounded, you know, it, it's not self-grounding, it's made to be self-grounding. The knowing, I think, is always the epistemology in this is always attached to the knowledge of good and evil and identity through difference. And this is always attached to the lie of the serpent, you'll be like gods, that is, that you can be the arbiters of ethics, that you will have life, that's the driving force, the desire here. Desire is not some sort of pure thing that attaches to the good as it's been portrayed in Aristotle. That is, there's no questioning of desire. There's whole realms of philosophical thought today in analytic philosophy that don't seem to question human desire. But I think what is pictured in the Bible is a profound questioning of desire. It is always, then, what is pictured in Anselm. I think this is the strange thing that people imagine that in some way through human rational, logical thought that they can arrive at the good. What is there in Genesis? Death is denied. You won't die. That is, it's displaced that you can in some way, the immortality of the soul, it's there in Descartes, it's there in Kant, it's there in Anselm. They're all acknowledging the innate immortality, and this reason is a demonstration of it. Don't presume that this is displaced in Genesis or anywhere else. But I assume that the negative experience, you know, the experience of shame, alienation, death, those things are not seen for what they truly are as alienating shame experiences. That is the isolating, alienating factor of sin. It's death denial. It's exponential mimetic desire. That becomes a part of the biblical depiction of sin. That is, the experience of death is taken up in this understanding as if it's the experience of life. And so what is offered in place of life is death. In place of God, shame and absence, they're held out as a kind of divine experience. That's precisely Heidegger. That's precisely Anselm. That is Hegel in place of naming and knowing God, and knowing which refers back to itself, that is, the reduplicated I. In Anselm, he's playing with the notion of ipseity, that is, in some way of arriving at an I that is undivided, that is, he wants to get rid of human finitude, and he imagines that if we could get rid of this sense in which we can think our own I, uh, a singular thought that then we've arrived at God. And so this is always what the RK, the principle of the world, does. It constitutes a closed world, an imminent frame, in which nothing is made an absolute impassable boundary. You know, the idol there is kind of interesting. The idol is, this is there in Kant, I've talked about that his a priori categories, that you can't exceed those boundaries. The idol in a sense, is an unobtainable object which creates an exponential desire. This is, you know, in Ezekiel, the picture of I and Isaiah that gives rise to child sacrifice. But any time that we imagine that this imminent frame is the absolute or that it gives way to the absolute, I think that that's the nature of this desire. This desire is tainted to begin with because it's a desire through, for life but it's through the medium of death, that is, that it's an agonistic desire. I guess that you can differentiate types of desire. You get this in Lacan, there is jouissance, and jouissance is just pure evil. But I do think that what is recognized there, there is this evil desire. Of course, in a Lacanian frame, it's out of the evil that the good comes. So if we're going to talk about desire, I think we can't talk about it in that sense, as if the two things are linked in that way, that is the desire for the vision of God, and this perverse desire. It may use all the same language, but it's describing a very different sort of experience, and I, I think a very different sort of experiential desire. And so Paul equates sin with the same idolatrous desire. 
But his point is it comes to grip everyone as they're confronted. You know, this is with the law. They find their own I or ego is unobtainable. That's the drive to obtain the self, to be the self. But you can't obtain the object of the I because there's a disjunction between the visual and the auditory. And so the death connected with this desire, it can either be a slow masochistic struggle with one's own body, a slow death, or it can just turn to murderous or idolatrous slaughter. That's the choices Paul holds out in Romans 3. He says that this does give rise to, to violence. But the point is to gain through death what was withheld by desire. That is, this is a death-dealing desire. In both Romans 3, there is the idolatrous slaughter, the murder. But it's not simply the idolaters that Paul is referencing. He seems to be purposely including instances in which may be referring to the, the priests literally participating in murder, setting up false religion, though they are the very priests of God. In other words, he's talking about in, in weaving together these quotes, the Jews, sometimes it's the Jews' enemies, but he weaves together, the whole point is to make his case that all have fallen short, that nothingness or emptiness seems to have been taken up into the very organs of speech there. The organs uh, of the speech all deal in death, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. In fact, in the psalm that Paul quotes, there's two kinds of speech, and maybe this gets at the very nature of what I'm talking about here, that one form of speech may orient one to God's presence, and the other is oriented to his absence. And the lie of sin deals in death and absence, even among those who have been entrusted, Paul says, with the very oracles of God. And so he's just demonstrated the problem is not that the law is inherently problematic, but with the law comes knowledge of sin. And that's not a bragging right, but rather it's an exposure, I think, or it was supposed to be an exposure of the very kind of thing that we're witnessing here in Anselm. That is that you're going to gain life through death and that this is a, a death-dealing desire. Now, I don't think we can underestimate the impact that the mistranslation of Romans 5.12. In some way, all of this has been mystified. I'm, I'm laying this out almost in a fashion that's so concrete that we're not used to hearing it. Because once you've obscured in the manner of Augustine the nature of sin, you know, he reverses cause and effect. So that actually what Romans 5.12 is saying is that death spread to all, and this gave rise to sin. What I've just described is really part of that. That is that nothingness, death, taken as an absolute, is made. That is definitive of sin. But what uh, Augustine does is sin is made the cause of death, such that anyone subject to death, well, they must be have been thought to sin. And so you lose the New Testament almost, and there is the sense that Anselm is falling in the stead of this obscuring of the nature of sin and repeating it. Yeah, clearly in Paul's argument, it is the reign of death which accounts for the spread of sin. That's what we're saying here is that it's not that death is the result of sin, but sin is a result of death. That's just an ex kind of an experiential reality. Paul says this much interwoven throughout the passage in Romans 5 is the truth that death reigns. He says in verse 12, death spread to all men. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, many died. The many died. Death reigned through the one, he says in verse 17. It's not that sin reigned automatically, but as sin reigned in death is Paul's conclusion in verse 21. That is, sin, it reigned in death, not the other way around. It's not that death came to reign through sin. Sin struggle, in Paul's explanation, is a struggle for existence in the face of the reality of death. And we've missed that, and we've created a whole system in which 
We've reversed the meaning of the atonement and we've reversed the experiential reality, I think, of what it means. That we've, in some way, we were faced with the problem of death and that's what's undone in resurrection faith. Yeah, we can say that, but it's perhaps beyond cognition. I've talked about this prior, that it's a kind of sublime experience. The human project is to extract from the mortal that which is immortal, to make the perishable the imperishable. And this is what Paul calls sin. And if you, you notice the sequence of events in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And so Paul is describing a law, the law of sin and death, given power through sin's orientation to death. And what salvation is going to do is give us a different orientation. It's going to defeat death. And so this law of sin and death, I guess it pertains to any law, any symbolic framework which would reify nothing, or it would make itself the, its own end. It would imagine you could attain life, or absolute truth, or however you want to put it. And so the point of the incarnation, the empty tomb, the risen Lord, is to erase the reifying lie inherent, not only to modern rationalism, but I guess surrounding every form of alienation and death, that every form of he who would save himself. This is the, uh, I think, the great failing of the arguments that are presented for God, that maybe these arguments in and of themselves might be harmless, but unfortunately what they tend to do is repeat what sin does. That is, they're going to take the finite, the mortal frame, and they're going to imagine that you can extract the immortal from it. But this is just over and against the, the notion of Christianity, that we come to know who God is in Christ, but who Christ is is not apart from creation and history in the world, but it's in and through that creation, history, and the world. And part of the, the work of Christ, then, is to undo the obscuring, the very frame of understanding that you get in Anselm, human wisdom, Greek wisdom, Jewish uh, searching for signs. All of these then become the obstacle, and strangely enough, we we're living right now in a period in which the obstacles reign, and I think the true message of the gospel is obscure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.